coming in shortly, or the message that you get will be really short tonight, all right? Uh, I want to uh, just, first of all, thanks for the church to the church. Uh, uh, this afternoon, we were able to hold a luncheon for bus drivers, and we had all of about three or four of us show up, but uh, it worked. So uh, anyways, uh, if you know of anybody that is looking for a job, uh, I know more schools look for bus drivers, and and uh, they are, it'd be best for us to be able to fill those positions so that they're not on the news uh, for <laughs> kids being not being picked up. Anyways, uh, so uh, thanks for letting us do something like that here at our building and, and uh, um, offering that. Any uh, prayer requests tonight? I'm hearing some music back here, David. Hey, David. There you go. Thanks. Any prayer request? It'll be the first. All right. So that's that's actually a praise, right? <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, let me uh, also just share a couple of things. I'm gonna. I am gonna ask you guys to be praying for uh, ask us as we uh, prepare our uh, mission or our budget for 2020, and uh, as as a church, as we look at all of our ministries, mission opportunities, and uh, everything that's in front of us. Ask you guys to be praying for that. Uh, our Amon team is meeting tonight, and we'll be meeting on Wednesday nights, uh, preparing for that mission trip that heads out in October. So just ask you guys to pray for that team. We've got five of us that are going, uh, Kay, um, uh, Kay Dudley, and uh, Gayla Bynum, uh, Maddie Harden, uh, Jared Smith, and myself. So we'll be heading over um, in October. So be praying for that. Um, and then uh, uh, just opportunities for us to be ministering in our community. I know Operation Christmas Child and all of those things will be taking place. Our Senior Adult Revival that's coming up. Be praying for that. All right. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll, we'll pray here. Father, we thank you for tonight. Just thank you for opportunities for us to be able to gather together. Pray that uh, you would just be with us as we look to the future. Uh, look at uh, what is in front of us. God, we thank you for the hope that you give us. And I pray that uh, today, uh, tonight, that uh, you remind us to continue to surround ourselves with those who don't know you. And, and not just that, but surround ourselves with intentionally telling them about you. God, that we wouldn't find ourselves uh, ducking away from that uh, calling that you've given us. And God, that we would pursue that with all of our heart, that people may know you. Father, I pray that you'd be with us as a church as we do look into the next year. Uh, I thank you for how you have uh, just used uh, every dollar that's uh, given through Emmaus to uh, minister to others. And, and I thank you for the faithfulness of this church family. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, just go before us and God, break people's hearts for you. I pray that as we gather together in worship, Lord, that you would break our hearts for your presence, that we would uh, desire for you to be moving in our midst. We love you, and it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. And Pastor Owen's here. So we're going to, uh, you're lucky, you almost got the really short message. Um, <laughs> so 
Anyways, any, uh, any praises that you guys have this week? Anything God's doing? Opportunities to tell others about Christ? Right? Well, let me just say this. I hope that we have those conversations every week. And uh, uh, us to be talking to each other about who are we talking to about the Lord. So, all right. I'm going to turn this over to Owen. I sent Carl to look for my other mic because I was running in and forgot it. This one's okay, too. So, oh, goodness. All right. Uh, well, as we, uh, as we get started and uh, transition to a time of Bible study in, in just a minute, as I was driving around picking up kids and thinking about getting back over here, one thing that's been on my heart today that I've thought about through personal experience is what it looks like to go from a point of being very discouraged and, and overwhelmed and uncertain. Thank you, Carl, for, for finding that. Um, to go from that point to just seeing God's grace and encouragement in our life and the, and the way that that comes. So hold that thought while I do this. That wasn't awkward at all, so <laughs> there we go. Yeah, to go from that point of, uh, of sometimes feeling discouraged or overwhelmed and the way that the Lord leads us beyond those, beyond those times, and so I, I had that feeling a little bit yesterday and, and even this morning, and I, I want you to know a couple of things that made such a big difference in, in, my, in my life today because I think this is important for all of us. Uh, number one, I received a prayer gram from someone through the, through the prayer ministry. It could have been any prayer note or a text message or anything, but a prayer gram that was just very encouraging and very timely as those often are when you receive a text message at just the right time or a, a note from somebody at just the right time. So I, I had that happen. Uh, I forced myself in, I say I forced myself, let's say it, God's grace led, led to this point of, just stepping back and taking my prayer journal and stepping off to the side for a few minutes and just praying, writing some things down. And then Jim probably mentioned this to you. I'm not sure if he did or not, but this afternoon we had a meeting with some people that are pushing the gospel into some very dark, hard places and how we could be a part of that. And just hearing about God's work around the world. All of those things took me from a place of feeling internally a little bit chaotic and discouraged and, and uncertain to just being, again, so encouraged about the power of the gospel and so excited about that. So let's translate to that to our lives as a church. What do you do when you feel discouraged, chaotic, you're not sure, you feel overwhelmed, what's going to happen in life? The gift of people praying for you, the gift of people around you who care for you, who send you prayer grams and text messages and call you at just the right time to say, I care for you, I love you, I'm praying for you. Personal times of prayer, forcing yourself to back away from the situation, take out your prayer journal, take out your Bible, just read scripture, pray, trust the Lord. Uh, in the history of the Christian church, a lot of people have practiced what are called the daily offices, and the daily offices are where every three hours 
you slow down for two or three minutes and just focus on the Lord. So we've, we've come up in a church tradition where we talk about having a quiet time where maybe I set aside 20 minutes or 30 minutes to give in time of study and, and scripture. That's a great thing if your schedule allows for it and your personality allows for it and you're able to do it. But there's a lot of wisdom in every three hours just setting an alarm and saying, I can back away for 90 seconds or two minutes or three minutes and just focus my mind back on the Lord. And you do that during the, during the day a few times. So doing that. And then being reminded of the power of the gospel and the way that the gospel is being spread around the world and, and what's taking place. Ed, uh, I think it's Sassnet. Ed's, is that the guy's name at Northeast Baptist who's the pastor of Northeast Baptist in Norman? I think it's Ed Sassnet. Is that it, Carl? So Carl and I share this story, the same story from Ed. Ed's uh, encouragement to other pastors is if you start feeling discouraged in the ministry and you just feel overwhelmed, the best thing you can do is go out and tell somebody about Jesus. Is that the right story, Carl? Is that what Ed says? Yeah. So we can get so tied up in our little world and overcome with the problems we're facing internally and everything starts to get out of perspective and feel bigger than it really is. And Ed's encouragement is break out of that and remember that there are people who need to hear about the gospel. Remember that there are people who are hurting who need to hear about Jesus. So uh, getting out of a funk in your life, if you're feeling overwhelmed or you're feeling discouraged, it's not a formula, but those three things are really helpful. Somebody who's praying for you, you personally taking a break to journal and pray, and then seeing the power of the gospel at work, either sharing that with someone or talking to someone about how that's happening in, in their life. Um, so anyway, I wanted to share that with you. I hope that that's, that's an encouragement to you. Anybody have a testimony about maybe a time recently you've been in a low point, you've been really overwhelmed and discouraged, and somebody has reached out to encourage you, or, or God's done something to lift you out of that, out of that pit? Anything? Hopefully your life doesn't go up and down as much as mine does, so, but anything the Lord's done to encourage you in that way? I had one today, Brother Carl, for you. Yeah. Coach is saying that uh, today, Carl came by and, uh, and visited him. Just the right time, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Those are, it does. <laughs> it really does. Yes, sir.
Yeah, no doubt, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. You be careful. That's right. Don't pray for patience. Uh, that's that's a great that's a great story. Sounds good. Well, I want to do a little, little background work on the passage we looked at Sunday out of Matthew chapter 12. My word, what's There we go. Matthew chapter 12. Oh my goodness. That pretty much sums up. Uh, uh, that sums it up for me right now. Yeah, who knows? That'll work. If I don't touch it, it won't fall apart. So, Okay. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Let's reread this section in case you weren't with us on Sunday morning. It starts out in verse 38, Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, let's start at the end and kind of work back a little bit. A, a quick overview reminder about Jesus' family. When he's talking about who are my mother and my brothers, obviously he's beginning to uh, redefine this concept of the family of God around those who are his disciples. And so we talked about that on 
Sunday morning, but it's also good to step back and remember who makes up the biological family of Jesus, so to speak. And I've put a few notes in front of you about that. Obviously, Mary uh, as, as his mother, and then we can talk of Joseph in a real sense as his adoptive father, that act of naming Jesus that seems in the ancient world to have been the act of the father to draw someone into the family. And so in many ways, Jesus uh, and Joseph acts as Jesus' adoptive father. Now, there were accusations from the very beginning, it seems, about Jesus being illegitimate in the sense that Mary had sexual relations with some human uh, and Jesus came as a result, not of the work of the Holy Spirit. There were these accusations. One famous accusation that gets passed down for several centuries is that there was a relationship, however it came, between Mary and a Roman soldier. And this becomes pretty common fare in some early writings from, from the first few centuries after Jesus. Just these accusations that no one wants to admit the fact that Jesus was born from a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you have these accusations that are swirling around. Some saying that obviously enough, Joseph is the father of Jesus and they just claim that the power of the Holy Spirit comes. We can see what this is. I mean, this is an attack against the idea that Jesus comes, born of a virgin, comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. But these accusations were, were rolling around. And so Jesus, in many, sense, many senses, stands alongside those people in the world who live under that type of accusation. Uh, if you've been in a situation where you've been accused of something that isn't true, that it, uh, Sermon on the Mount talks about when speak, people speak falsely against you. If you've been in business very long, it, depending on your family background, there's a good chance that someone has spoken falsely about you in order to demean your character or in order to make you look bad. We know that this was true of Jesus. It was true from the very time that he was born all the way through his ministry. And so Jesus stands with people who are dishonored in the eyes of the world, but who God looks on and says, no, this person is ultimately honorable because they're my son. So don't miss what Jesus' ministry looks like that he was spoken badly about from the very time of his, time of his birth. Uh, we know that Mary had particular insight, that she treasured up things in her heart about what she experienced. It's really good to know that Jesus had preteen tension uh, with his parents. That story from Luke chapter, chapter 2 we have a 12-year-old in the house, and so that gives you some level of, of solace to see how Jesus is trying to work out this situation uh, with, with his parents, and his parents in that situation not recognizing truly who he was going to be. And that becomes important because his family, it takes a long time for them to recognize who Jesus is and, and what he's come to do. Uh, we see Jesus caring for his mother, uh, Mary, at the time of his death. Now, in Matthew 13, if you turn over there just for a minute, it's not very far from where our Bibles are open to, but if you turn over to Matthew 13, 53, or if you're on your phone, just scroll down for a little bit. Matthew 13, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and in coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? 
and are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us, where then did this man get all these things? This, along with uh, John chapter, uh, where's the other list? Oh, in uh, Galatians 1 and Jude 1, you also get references to the family of Jesus. But Matthew 13 is our clearest list of the brothers and sisters of Jesus. You have James listed there, uh, who will become the, the writer of the book of James. You have the last name in verse 55, Judas, is almost certainly the Jude of New Testament authorship who writes the book of Jude. Almost certainly Judas and Jude are, are the same person. So you have Jesus' brothers listed there. Now his family, only after the resurrection do they actually come to believe in him as the Son of God. There's something about the resurrection that transforms their understanding of Jesus. That's important because I want you to go back to verse 38, and we want to go back through these verses and, and think about them a little bit more. On your note sheet, I just gave you a little bit more information about how Matthew deals with the concept of family, uh, but we're not going to walk through those, those bullet points. But what I want you to see is how the resurrection was the turning point for Jesus' biological family believing in him, but the resurrection is also put forward as a turning point for others and what it will mean to believe in Jesus. So, so watch how this happens. You go back to chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, let's think about the word sign for a minute because that is incredibly important in, in this situation. On your note sheet at the bottom of the, of the front side, I gave you a section there about the concept of signs in Scripture. In the Old Testament, you have signs showing up in several different places. Moses is given signs so to speak, to carry out before Pharaoh. In many ways, the plagues and the acts of God's power function as signs. That, that type of language is even used there. Signs of God's power, signs of God's control in the situation. Probably when you think about a sign being used in the Old Testament, Gideon is maybe the most famous example of that, of putting the fleece out. I mean, that's the type of language that still even carries over into culture today about, about asking for a sign. God, I need a sign that, that you're at work here. Uh, though Gideon's asking of a sign, in a sense, reflects lack of faith as much as it might faith in God. Um, you have Elijah calling down fire from heaven. You have Ahaz and Hezekiah uh, in their relationship with Isaiah's prophecies where a sign will be given to you. A virgin will, be, uh, will give birth to a child. That becomes a sign that's given to one of the kings of God's at work here. So there are these Old Testament signs. In the New Testament, when you think about the word signs, I hope your mind would go to the Gospel of John, first of all. Because the Gospel of John is essentially divided into two halves, that Gospel is. The first 12 chapters are often called the Book of Signs. And then chapter 13 through 21 is called the Book of Glory. 
So the first half of John's gospel, you have numerous signs that are given, and then Jesus will use these I am statements to talk about who he is. And so it sets up an understanding of Jesus. And then the book of glory that starts in chapter 13 of John and goes to the end shows the signs about Jesus coming to fulfillment through his death and his resurrection. And specifically there in chapter 13, his time with the disciples. So when you see the word sign in the New Testament, the gospel of John is kind of the neon sign, so to speak, for for that word. You have all these signs. Famously, Famously, John gives us seven signs. Why seven signs? Well, there's different reasons, but the most common is that the number seven in the Bible carries this sense of fulfillment, uh, completion, perfection. If, sometimes the number 10 will be used in that way, sometimes the number 40, but usually it's the number seven is this idea of completion. And so you get seven signs. And I actually listed those, I think. Yeah, I did. On your paper. There's the water turned to wine. There's the healing of a Roman official son. There's the healing of a paralyzed man. The feeding of 5,000. Walking on water. Healing the man born blind. And then raising Lazarus. Now here's the cool thing. Those seven signs in the Gospel of John. They're all leading up to the sign of Lazarus being raised from the dead. What type of sign is that? Resurrection. (laughs) So all the signs about what Jesus was going to do are pointing to a sign about the resurrection. So when you get to the Gospel of Matthew, the ministry of Jesus is going to work in a similar, similar way. You have signs of his power, but they're all pointing toward the concept of resurrection. Now, let's think for a second before you get to Matthew chapter 12. From what you remember about the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 up to chapter 12, what signs of Jesus' power have we seen up to this point? So this is not just a test. This is more thinking of, like, when you look at the scope of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 1 to Matthew 12, what signs of Jesus' power have we seen up to this point? What stands out to you? Somebody say something. Yes, so there's a woman touching his, his garment back in, in Matthew 9. Or eight, 8 or 9. What else do you remember? Yeah. Really, you could just say, hey, everything in chapter 8 and 9, <laughs> there's, there's multiple, multiple stories like these stories that show his power in chapters 8 through 9. Uh, what else stands out as signs of his, his power? Casting demons, calm the storm, feather, yeah. Healing, yeah, these general healings that have happened up to this point. There's the experience at his baptism, heaven opening, voice coming down, dove coming down about his power. Even the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where the people say that they are amazed at his teaching because he's speaking as one having authority, something about his teaching is even designed as a sign of his power. So there have been multiple signs given to the people up to this point 
Here's the power of, of Jesus at work. Okay, now let's do something for a minute. Come to present day life. So the lives that we live right now, 21st century life, you can't use resurrection because that takes away the whole point of the lesson tonight, okay? So set aside resurrection for just, just a minute since that's where we're going. What other signs do we have of the power of God at work in the world and at work in our lives? If you were trying, if someone says, you know what, I appreciate that you go to church. I don't buy the whole faith thing. I'm really unsure about the existence of a God in the world. What do we speak about when we speak about signs that people could look at of, of God's power, God's work? A rainbow in the, in, the, in the sky. His creation. Yeah, I think we just think about probably creation in general. The, uh, you talk about the beauty of creation when you talk to people. So you're trying to use prophecies from the scripture to say, hey, this was predicted, this came true. Yeah, that's an apologetic thing that is used, uh, used a lot. Especially when you can show that they weren't random, that they were very specific. This was prophesied, this came to pass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The second half of Daniel is big on when it comes to that idea of of, of those prophecies. Isaiah is obviously big in that, in that sense. What other signs do we point to when we talk about the, the power of God? Yeah, we just kind of say, look at my own life. Your testimony of, of your life is a sign of God's power. Um, and, and even if people, uh, how do we say this? I, I've, I'm trying to get the, the words around this. Even if people might disagree with your doctrine or what you're telling them uh, about what you believe, it's very hard for people to disbelieve change that they see in your life or, or a different type of life. You were like this, now you live like this. Everyone else lives like this, you live like this. So yeah, uh, a testimony is a sign of, uh, of God's power. You do, and people have to account for that. Like, we still see miracles of healing, miracles that come in a lot of different, different forms. Even those that aren't followers of Jesus will all, a lot of times speak about miracles. Here's the interesting thing about the world we live in today, and you, you probably, you've probably heard this before, but we live in a culture that is becoming less and less religious, but in some ways is becoming more and more spiritual in certain ways. And so you see the rise of things like new age type spirituality or, or sometimes what accounts for pretty dark uh, magic, dark spirituality. So younger people, younger culture, don't really want a lot to do with religion, it seems, organized religion. But there's this really interesting uh, appeal of spirituality. And, and so we have to think, how do we use their interest in spirituality to point them where? To the resurrection. <laughs> so, we've hit a lot. Anything else stand out to you as a sign of God's power when you just talk about looking at the uh, at things around us? Yeah, so you talk about creation. You even think, I mean, we think sometimes about creation like looking at out there, you know, the mountains, the trees, the things we love to look at, but even the way that the, 
the human body is, is made. Some arguments for the existence of God have to do with the fact that there are certain aspects of our human anatomy that even people who are prone to, to take a pretty strong evolutionary stance still have trouble explaining how certain aspects of the human body came to develop in the way that they did. And so, again, you say, well, it seems like there's a divine power at work here. Um, yeah, that's a, great, that's a great point. Okay, so let's think about that. There's all these signs out there pointing to the power of Jesus. Now watch what Jesus does in, back in, in, in verse 39. So he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, or, or we might say an additional sign. An evil and adulterous generation that is not interested in the things of God, not committed to the things of God, is always seeking after demanding, is the kind of the way the language works, demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what's the sign of the prophet Jonah? What, what's being talked about here? It could be the sign that Jonah is sent to preach to the Ninevites, but almost certainly the sign that's being referred to here is that Jonah was swallowed by the big fish and, in a sense, experienced a resurrection, so to speak. It's as if he was dead, he was in the belly of the fish, and then he was alive again. One of the reasons that we think that the sign of Jonah here refers to the idea of a resurrection, of, of Jonah being dead and then alive again, is most of the Jewish, ancient Jewish literature that exists, it's so funny how this parallels our, our own world. Most of the Jewish literature that exists, when it speaks about Jonah, it doesn't speak about the end of the book of Jonah, where he goes to preach, and then he has this little experience with the, with the worm, um, and then he has this pity party, and then the book just ends. <laughs> it, it doesn't talk about that. It mainly talks about the fish story. Well, you think about most, the way most kids' books are put together, kids' Bibles are put together. Most of what we know about the story of Jonah, we focus on the first two chapters or first three chapters more than we do the fourth chapter of Jonah. Ancient Jewish literature is the same way. So when people heard Jonah, they primarily thought about the fish story, about what was happening when he was sent as a messenger of God. He dies, he comes to life again, so to speak. And he, he speaks to the people. So right here, when you have this, and Jesus says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, here's the question. Jesus is giving the audience a sign, a promise of a sign, but it's a future sign. It's not happening. He's not giving them something that's going to happen right then. Why does he not show them the power of the resurrection right then? Wouldn't they have believed? Hold that thought. Luke chapter 16. Look at this parable that happens in Luke chapter 16 that really sheds a lot of light on, on what Jesus is doing here. Because remember... The Pharisees and the scribes here are demanding a sign. They want Jesus to do something particular to show his power. He says, I'll show you my power. It's going to look like Jonah's story, 
but it's not going to come right now. It's, it's going to be a little bit later. So Luke 16 has this interesting parable. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. So Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus and like men are bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to do so, and none may cross from there to us. Here's what happens in verse 27. He said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Just because a resurrection happened did not mean it was going to automatically change their hearts because their hearts were set against the things of, of Christ. And so what's the emphasis in that parable? It's on hearing Moses and the prophets. What does Matthew say about the coming of Jesus? Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them. That everything that the prophets have spoken about has now come to the people in Jesus. Is his resurrection going to be the key sign? Yes, it is. Is it automatically going to mean that people are going to believe in him? No, because what happens immediately after the stories of the resurrection of the New Testament, you find people spreading rumors and lies and trying to dispute what, what has happened. And so, it's not just the matter of give me the sign I want and then I'll believe. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart being, being transformed. Okay, so let's go back to, to Matthew chapter 12 if we can. So this sign is given to the people in, in verses 39, verse 40, where it says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. This is 1241. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. All right, go to the Old Testament part of your Bible, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 10. I want you to see the backstory 
for what Jesus is referring to here. First Kings, if you're trying to find it, uh, is, is pretty close to the beginning. Your Bible, you get through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then you get the books of Samuel, then you get the book of Kings. So, 1 Kings chapter 10. So when in Matthew 12, it refers to the queen of the south rising up at the judgment. What's it, what's it referring to? 1 Kings chapter 10. Let's read this little story here. Verse 1, 1 Kings 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. That seems interesting in light of the way that the Pharisees often uh, treated Jesus trying to test him with questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue. Wow, that's a great ESV <laughs> word choice there. What do you guys have in translations other than retinue? Caravan? What are the ESV translators doing there? Oh, my word. That's such a strange word choice there. Interesting. Well, anyway. Uh, with camels, that's the first time today I've used the word retinue. Uh, to, uh, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, into verse 2, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. That's almost the language of the Gospels about the people being in awe, uh, uh, being amazed at what they had, had seen. Verse 6, she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. There's so much fascinating language in here when you think about relationship to the Gospels. But Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you keen that you may execute justice and righteousness then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Uh, so there's the situation of a non-Jew seeking after the wisdom and the power and the glory of this other king, this king of Israel. So you fast forward back to Matthew chapter 12 and what's happening here. Jesus is very clearly saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you have God's wisdom and power and glory right here for you, and you are not responding. But here's someone who went out of her way from so far away to come to another place to hear about this, this message. Obviously, there's a you know, an incredible lesson for us to consider here about when you think about the gospel spreading into other countries and other cultures and you hear stories of how far people travel 
just to hear the word of God spoken, just to hear the word of God taught, the, the trouble that they go to. I remember a documentary one time we watched about uh, some kids in sub-Saharan Africa and the efforts they went to every day just to attend school. It's this incredible picture of the danger that these little kids go through just to get from their home to, to where the school was located. And then we made our kids watch it to make them feel bad about not wanting to do, to do school. You guys don't even have to leave your house to go to school. And look at these kids and what they do to go to school. And so this is Jesus telling the people, God's glory and divine wisdom has come to dwell among you, and you're rejecting it. But here's someone, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, who went out of her way from so far away, not even as an Israelite herself or a Jew herself, to seek after the things of God. And so she is going to, in a sense, rise up and condemn this generation that has rejected God's power. What it says clearly to us in America, and, and Oklahoma in particular, is to have all the signs of God's glory and power and the access we do to his word and the access to the gospel, to reject that is a great rejection for the goodness of God to be displayed in the ways that it, that it has. Here's what I want to end with, though, from this, this whole chapter. This is really neat the way all, it all comes together. So, back in 41, the end of verse 41, there's this phrase, something greater than Jonah is here. End of verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. Go back to verse 6 at the beginning of chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 6. After Jesus speaks about the Sabbath and the priest and the temple and the law, well, let's just start in verse 5. It'd make more sense. Verse 5. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So watch what words are combined there in verse 5. Law, Sabbath, priest, temple. All combined there. Verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So in Matthew chapter 12, this culmination of the first part of Matthew's gospel about who Jesus is, greater than the temple, verse 41, greater than Jonah, verse 42, greater than Solomon. Sometimes Jesus is presented as prophet, priest, and king. The one who comes to us as prophet, the messenger of God's word, priest, the intermediary between God and man, king, God's representative on earth, all three of those ideals that are presented in the Old Testament about what it will look like for God to reveal his glory and reveal his message and reveal his power, all three of those are summed up in and even surpassed in the ministry of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is prophet, he is priest, he is king, and he is greater than any earthly prophet, any earthly priest, any earthly king. Why? Because he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. And ultimately, only he will be able to offer his life for us and then rise again to defeat the power of death. So, we've been through these first 12 chapters of Matthew's gospel. It leads us to this portrait of Jesus because then in chapter 13, he's going to start teaching these parables about the kingdom. What does it look like to follow this one who's prophet, priest, and king? All right, let's pray. We'll head out. 
Father, thank you for the access we have to your word, to the gospel. Help us to never take that lightly. God, thank you for the signs of your power that you have placed all around us. Ultimately, our hope is in the cross and the resurrection in Jesus, who is greater than anything this world could ever offer, who surpasses any spiritual person who has ever lived, any religious leader who has ever lived. And so our faith is in him. And God, help us not waver from that. Father, I pray for anyone here tonight who is discouraged. God, that you would remind them of how good you are. God, you would remind them of your presence and your power. You would remind them of how good the good news of Jesus truly is, how great he is when we follow him and we worship him. And God, all of that would lead us to share that with others. Father, thank you for Emmaus. Thank you for what this church means to me and my family. God, I'm so thankful, so excited about how you're at work here, how you're at work through us. God, may we remain faithful to you, to your word, to the gospel. God, help us to live that out together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you.